Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's a lot of end friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be a-okay. known fact about my guest today. He is an acclaimed director. He's been the artistic director of the Atlantic Theater Company in New York City since 1992. And most recently, he became a Tony-nominated director because of his extraordinary production on Broadway this season of American Buffalo, starring Darren Chris, Sam Rockwell, and Lawrence Fishburne. I'm so thrilled to have my dear friend Neil on the podcast. Welcome, Neil Pepe. Hey, everyone. My guest today is Neil Pepe. Neil is an acclaimed director and has been the artistic director of the Atlantic Theatre Company in New York City since 1992. As a director, Neil's Broadway credits include American Buffalo, Hands on a Hard Body, Speed the Plow, and A Life in the Theater. Those are the Broadway credits. Then there are many, many things that he's directed at the Atlantic Theater Company, including Three Kinds of Exile, Dying Ford, Parlor Song, Mojo, and The Night Heron. Some of his many off-Broadway and regional directing credits include Ethan Cohen's Happy Hour Offices and Almost an Evening, Harold Pinter's Celebration and the Room, Adam Rapp's Dreams of Flying, Dreams of Falling, and a previous production of David Mamet's American Buffalo at the Dunmare Warehouse in London and at the Atlantic. He's also directed plays at Playwrights Horizons in the Williamstown Theatre Festival. He's also, for those of you who don't know, little known fact early on, he's an incredible musician and honestly, a damn fine actor. He's also very recently now my Tony-nominated friend, Neil Pepe. He is married to the glorious and talented Mary McCann, one of my favorite actresses and humans as well. Um, They reside in Manhattan, New York City, planet Earth. I am so unbelievably grateful to steal you for a few minutes today, Neil Pepe. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to see you and to be here. Um, so I've known you a really long time. I want to start with like 
present day and then we'll go back because as I said in the intro, like when we first met, we were actors running around New York City, um, you know, getting jobs or not getting jobs. And I was in Naked Angels Theater Company and, and you were in uh, the Atlantic Theater Company. Would I have known at the time that I'd be speaking to Tony nominated Neil Pepe? I don't know that I would have known that as a director. So let's start with American Buffalo that plays yeah. right now at Circle in the Square. Uh, on Broadway. And and just tell me a little bit about why you decided to do this play again, and then how you assembled this incredible cast. And you can name who's in it and sort of how that came to be. Great, great. Um, yeah, well, well, maybe to move back or, or start at the present and then move backwards. So yes, I'm doing it on Broadway at Circle in the Square. I have the thrill and honor to be working with Lawrence Fishburne, Sam Rockwell, and Darren Chris, all of whom are amazing actors and has made the process so joyful. Um, my history with the play and why, um, as you probably know, I've, as you just said, I've been a member of the Atlantic Theater Company for quite a long time. And that, that company was founded by William H. Macy and David Mamet. I've known Weirdly, I've known this play since I, I saw it first when I was in college. I think it's the first David Mamet play I ever saw, and I was really kind of um, struck by it. I just re vividly remember thinking, wow, I've never seen anything like it. Then uh, sort of cut forward to me being a member of the Atlantic, me becoming artistic director, and then us deciding to do a season of Mamet in the year, in 2000. And uh, I uh, I called David and said um, I'd love to direct American Buffalo, and um, and William H Macy wanted to be in it playing Teach, and he said great. Um, and it was I I'd sort of only gotten into directing four or five years prior to that, so it was sort of a big deal. And then I knew through an acquaintance. Oh, sorry. So that production was William H Macy, Philip Baker Hall, and Mark Weber. And we had planned to do it at the Atlantic as part of this mammoth season. And then I knew at the time a little bit Sam Mendez, who was running the Dunmar Warehouse in London. And he um, and another woman I knew, Lucy Davies, said, what if you started it at the Dunmar and then moved it to London? Which was sort of thrilling beyond belief because I had never worked in London. I had studied for a year there, did a year abroad in college. Anyway we did it. We rehearsed it for two weeks in LA. Uh, sorry, we rehearsed it for a week in LA, two weeks in New York. We flew over to London. We did it there. It was really successful. And then we brought it back to the Atlantic for three months. So that's a, as brief as I can make it my first real experience with the play. Then when they were talking about doing it again, um, or I should say I'd known Sam Rockwell many, many years um, through you know, all of us kind of being around New York as actors and directors. And every time I ran into Sam, he was like, I love that play. I've always wanted to play teach. I've always wanted to play teach. And that had been 15 years. And I sort of was like, oh, maybe I'll be lucky enough if I, you know, somehow fate <laughs> is on my side that I would be allowed to direct that. And I got a call from Jeffrey Richards, who's produced a lot of mammoth stuff on Broadway saying, um, we'd love for you to direct it. Sam wants to be in it. Um, and then uh, Mammon and I met with Lawrence and he was really excited to do Donnie, which was kind of incredible and a dream come true. And then we, uh, and Darren Chris had done a reading of the play a few years prior and <clears throat> we ended up doing it. <clears throat> and as you know, we started rehearsals just before COVID 
shut down just before we were going into tech, kept rehearsing on on uh, online. We, we, you know, for two months, kept thinking it was going to come back. And then it was, you know, down for two years. And I was sort of praying that with all the busy schedules of these guys, we could keep the posse together and we and we did it so that's that's um that's the shortest version of the story i can come up with yeah well let me ask you about the the lawrence fishburne at the center of this how did that how did that specific brilliant choice become a conversation that that brought me to see him at the show the other night like how did that actually happen you know i know Lawrence, like Sam, had always been a huge fan of the play. And you you may remember this, Alana. It, back in, in I think it was the mid-90s, uh, there was a play that Lawrence wrote and starred in with uh, Titus Welliver and Heavy D, and it was called Riff Raff. Yeah. And that play um, was inspired by American Buffalo because Lawrence always loved American Buffalo. And I think I can't remember the whole plot, but I just know it was three guys hanging out somewhere. And I don't know if they, they may have even been planning some ill-fated something. Right. Um, but I remember seeing it. And um, and that was the only time I think I met Lawrence because Lawrence and Titus were really close. And I knew Titus through other friends of ours. Um, so I knew he was a fan. And then they said, I, I think somebody reached out because <clears throat> we've been talking about great people for Donnie and you know, what people don't know, or because teach is the showier role, they don't sort of perceive that Donnie is, in fact, the protagonist. He's the guy right. driving all the action. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. having a great, powerful actor in that role was, to me, sort of one of the revelations about how to do it again. Um, anyway, we had this great meeting with Lawrence, me, and Mamet out in L.A. Um, I don't know. Gosh, I guess it was the year before covid hit where did you meet with him um i think we met with him as at his agent's office Mm -hmm. in la which was for me terrifying i mean i I barely know la so i'm like showing up trying to look la you're still holding a thomas guide in your hand like yeah exactly make a right on sepulveda (laughs) do you remember that yeah i was like i used to it's like going to england and driving on the wrong side of the road i'd I'd, I'd be holding the book trying to figure it but it was basically that and i and they though you know lawrence and mamet were much cooler than i was but i tried to hold my own anyway we had a long and great discussion about the play and uh and then lawrence signed up which you know, I mean, I'm sure you've had this experience when you're in a room rehearsing with people that you've watched since you were in high school, yeah. you know, especially Lawrence and Apocalypse Now and all the yeah. different things that Unbelievable. he's done. Yeah. And then marrying that with Sam and Darren and they both, they, they all have this sort of wide range of really exciting work. Anyway, that's how we, that's how Lawrence came into the picture and, um, and he was, you know, He's just an extraordinary person, actor, and human being. Yeah. And obviously, I mean, I'm, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure you've been talking a lot about this play with a lot of people. Um, having Lawrence at the center of it, it with text that was not necessarily written for a person of color originally, you know, for people who haven't seen the play, although it's sort of like a, a globally known, there are monologues from this play that every boy I ever took an acting class with did the effing roofie yes. you know the, yes, the, that absolutely. speech you yeah. you don't even know what it's from and then you know and then you realize oh my god that's where it's from um yeah. but you know in this play uh 
which is, you know, just to set it up briefly, it, it takes place in a junk shop. Scott Pask, the, the designer of this play, has done the most phenomenal job of really making you feel like you are just walking around this crazy emporium of collected things. Um, yeah. It's just one of the best sets I've ever seen, and he should win every award. Um, the Alana Levine Award for sure, and uh, and it's the about COVID three. Alana Levine yes, Award. exactly. And it's you know it's these guys, and you feel like you know them. They're these 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 characters who hang out in in their you know friends' junk shop basically, and and they are you know it's called American Buffalo because they they you know someone has walked into the store and and has bought a, a nickel that's in this store for a crazy amount of money for the time, and so these three guys who know nothing about coins or collections um, or investing in things like this decide like they're gonna they're gonna plan a heist is basically the i've just done a terrible job explaining the no that's That's exactly right you've done it exactly right that's That's the, the plot but really what it is is this exploration of these three humans who are all suffering in different ways and all have not had the easiest of lives or the best of luck in their lives that's right that's right yeah and it's and it's written uh you know I can't remember. I mean, it feels so present, even though the language has a kind of throwbacky sort of tone. Do you, what year is it? When? In? Yeah, it was, it was, I mean, he wrote it, I believe in 1975. I think that was the, interestingly, the first, so the first production was done. I think it was done in us in the Goodman studio when, when oh. Gregory Mosier was running it. And, and actually William H. Macy was the first Bobby. He was the young guy. Oh. And then, you know, and then he went on to play Teach for me in that 2000 production. But um, yeah, Mamet wrote it. I mean, it was really the play. He had done a couple of plays before that. Um, The one that everybody knew about was Sexual Perversity in Chicago. And that's put him on the map. But American Buffalo took off um, first in a small production. And then I think they moved it maybe to a, if I have my facts correct, a, a slightly larger theater at the Goodman. Then it was done off or off off Broadway in New York at St. Clements that Moja directed again. And then it got um, Ulu Grossbard, Robert Duvall, John Savage, and Kenny McMillan did it on Broadway. I think it was at the Barrymore. I can't remember if I got this theater right. Anyway, that was a big sensation. And, um, but hearing about the first, um, the first production of it, it was, you know, you're right. A lot of people know this play and it's very iconic. And I, it has to do somewhat with what you were just saying about who these guys are and trying to get a bigger piece of the pie and some of the themes which we can get into. But I also think there was something about Mamet's ability to turn street vernacular, for lack mm-hmm. of a better word, mm-hmm. into kind of poetry. And the thing that's amazing about it is is when you really listen to these guys, even though, I, I mean, the other thing I should say right at the outset, it put Ma- Mammon on the on the map because it used so much profanity. I mean, yeah. a lot of people were like, you cannot say those words on stage. And I think it was very, very shocking when it came out. Um, but at the same time, it was clearly not only, you know, the structure of the story, Mammon's attention to, sort of the detail of the character, his understanding of their needs, their monumental needs, and that it's a sort of moment of reckoning in their lives. But he took this language and these rhythms, and he even, if you count it out, as Mosier points out somewhere, um, 
he, he actually sticks fairly close to iambic mm-hmm. you know he's doing that and um and and when you really get into it and he's any he, i think not for nothing like pinter who i think was an influence for him certainly at that time there's a lot of interrupted rhythmic speech which frankly even though on the page you look at it and you go this is so strange i've never read anything like it it ends up being very real and and actually at like human beings talk because we all think quicker than we can talk and we interrupt mm-hmm. each other and mm-hmm. mammoth had a particular ability with that so there were a lot of reasons that it was such an extraordinary piece and and had such an impact um but the other thing i guess i would say not that you asked but get, to get into the the question about what's resonant about it i mean there's thematically there's all sorts of things which honestly i think mammon understands as a storyteller this sort of father-son relationship between donnie and bobby it is these three guys in the junk shop donnie runs the junk shop and he's kind of the leader teach is a is a good friend um they play these poker games in the in the you know you hear about these poker games um and and there's this gopher who's bobby who who does these chores so so yes they are all at a weird moment of reckoning in their lives and they find out this 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 sort of the catalyst the event that just happened before the play they they found this guy who they think um who has bought this coin and they think he's got some some great coin collection and they're going they're planning the heist they're planning to to rip his house off and um and it's all the things that happen around that plan which goes very wrong for anybody who hasn't seen the show but it really puts them face to face with who they are as individuals well because unlike oceans 11 (laughs) (laughs) like whatever you think of that this is the opposite some people may know and some people may not know, you know, much of the Atlantic theater's work uh, is built on this premise that, that I guess Macy and Mamet began a long time ago, but of a kind of acting style, right? There's, um, I think it's called the practical aesthetic. Is that the name of the handbook of the. That's yeah. That's the name of, of what they sort of call this technique of, of acting. Yes. Right. That's correct. There's this thing that people, you know, it's like, just say the lines, right? That's always been like the thing. And I just have to say, um, maybe that's true if you're Sam Rockwell, Lawrence Fishburne, Terry well, I, I want to understand that a little more and how you use that. Like, it's so meta. Now you're working on Mammoth text with, with Mammoth language. Well, there's yeah. I mean, it's it's look. It's great you you brought it up, and there's it's just to dispel some myths. Um, there's a lot of different things about the technique and how various people describe. But the fact of the matter is, what 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 you're describing, the basic sort of premise of the technique. It's it's very action oriented. It's all about playing an action and playing an objective. And there were, as you know, there's different techniques where the Strasbourg was very emotion based and still Adler was very sort of character based, but um, uh, Macy and Mamet, Mamet had studied with Sanford Meisner. And so a lot of it is very much based in Sanford Meisner's technique. Anyway, it's all about action and it's all about serving the story of the play. Those are the two main tenets that I would say. Um, this idea of the, the just say the words or the words are gibberish, which is sort of controversial. I think, I think with that 
idea was always about playing the action and letting the words follow um, and letting the sort of the playwright do their job, the actor do their job and the director do their job. But um, going to sort of putting all of it together in terms of the not only the violence, <clears throat> but how you work on this and the filmicness of this. There is something amazing when you're collaborating with great artists, as you know, and hopefully this is something I've learned as a director of allowing everybody to bring their A game. So the fact of the matter is just talking about the violence, for instance, we had David Brimmer, who's a great, you know, violence person for, for, for theater. But we also had Lawrence and, and Sam who had done in their films a lot of violence. So they were really good at it. So in talking through what was going on acting wise, how we do it, how we do, for those of you that don't know, Circle in the Square is almost in the round. So like Alani was talking about, you really feel like you're in the room. So um, it was really, how do we do this, make it feel and look real um, to everybody and then also because it's such a famous, you know, I'm going to spoiler alert, but he, he, uh, teach sort of trashes the, the shop. Um, it's a famous thing and everybody has done it in different ways. And, and what we got to came very much from Sam of the slow build. Normally it's a very quick build, but Sam sort of slowly has this kind of anxiety thing that almost, almost sort of faints and then he explodes. And so it was very, very interesting, amazing process, allowing the actors to explore it kind of like you would in a film mm -hmm. um, and then just build on it, you know? When you, um, at this point, when you set out to direct something, do you have some sort of, on the first day of rehearsal, regardless of who's in my play, what play I'm doing or where I am, I start off with this. Do you have a sort of thing that you do on your first day that's pretty consistent? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's certainly friends or people that you and I know or admire who are more, you know, who I think of as, as like auteur directors. Um, and I don't, I, I've always thought of myself, I'm in service of something larger than myself. And that's why I've always, I've always loved the sort of basic principles of where we come from, which is, which is really about the story. You have this incredible, all of our, you know, amazing playwright friends have the ability to tell a story. So the question is, how do you, bring everybody together to serve that story. Anyway, to answer your question, um, it's pretty basic with me where I, I find it very important not to say much of anything about the play mm -hmm. on the first day of rehearsal. We do the sort of meet and greet and everything, but to read the play without talking about it. And that's really, really important to me because what you hear is the actor's initial instincts, which 97% of the time are amazing. Um, and in some ways you spend the process working back to them. Um, or you mean you that, that the, initial instinct to get back yeah, to the what initial the read through. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's their the, sort of the, just, just bringing the, their first instinct of truth to the, to reading it around a table. 
Um, you know, and obviously there's things that will be changed completely, but just understanding who they are, because the fact of the matter is, as you go through the process, and you know, this is an actor, you're really spending so much of your time trying to marry the truth of the story with the truth of the actors. And then me as a director is cheerleading the actors into believing and, and knowing that if it's a great play, and I say this a lot, if it's a great play, in my mind, <clears throat> it's without question one of the top three or four most important things that have ever happened to those characters in their life, bar nothing. And I feel like if you always keep that in mind, then you realize why the stakes are high. And if you if you don't, then you try to figure out that thing of like, well, what happens if I don't achieve this objective? And if the stakes aren't high enough, then it's not big enough. Anyway, I usually do a first read through. I listen very closely to the actors. And then I talk a little bit about not only what I think the basic story is, but I try to get underneath what I think um, is going on. And underneath, when I say underneath, it's not, you know, it's that thing where sometimes people talk a lot, but they don't, you don't necessarily know what they're doing until you get underneath the story and why. So that's where we try to hone in on the objectives, spend a few days around the table really doing that until we feel like, wow, we just have to get up and start moving because it, we understand it so well. But that's important, trying to understand what's yeah. really happening. Yeah. In this, in this rehearsal process, was there any improvisation between those three guys? Yes, there was. And that's an interesting thing because, well, a couple of things. One is the thing about doing Mammoth like any really, really good writer, you don't want to fight the words. And what I mean by that is it's very, very important to know the to know the words verbatim, because like a piece of music, if you play a piece of music and you you know, there's certain pieces of music yeah, they set up to improv, but you got to play the music, you know it inside and out in order to be able to kind of free yourself. So there's two parts to it. One is you got to really understand what's happening with the language and learn the rhythms and work perfectly. But at the same time, you don't want to be bound by them. So, cause sometimes you can be muscled around by the language and that happens to people with Pinter and Mammon and of course, Shakespeare and all these others. Um, so there were times like with the, the big Ruthie speech that Sam has, and even we call it the one act play at the end of the, at the end of the play, which is all this stuff happens for the last 15 pages um, that's very complicated. So there were times, yeah, where we couldn't find the truth of it. And, um, and we would just, you know, it's funny. It wouldn't be straight up improv, but they'd go off the script sometimes just to understand what was happening. And that was very, very helpful. But, you always had to come back to writing the words because the moment you don't it like a like like a piece of music that's not played well you you get off you get off rhythm and did you guys spend time when you sort of figuring out um and by the way it it wouldn't make any difference in the final performance whether you did or not but sort yeah. of understanding how how Bobby and Donnie met or what I mean did you sort of 
think about those relationships or did everyone sort of just jump in and this is the dynamic and this is who no, we are because the script says so. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny because, <clears throat> you know, what you're getting at sometimes is everybody has a different process. You know, some people, you know, have, have whether they tell you or not, they've thought about lots of the sort of past history of characters. I tend to start with what's actually happening. What's the event of the play? What are we doing? Why is it important? And how does that, how, what are the peaks and valleys along that, along the way? But then, yes, of course, we got very much into the questions of, you know, what happened at the poker game? I mean, they both, both Donnie and Teach lost a lot of money. And, uh, and, and, you know, what is, there was a question even about like, you know, Lawrence said at one point, I think both of these guys have gone to prison mm -hmm. and I think neither of them want to go back to prison. And, uh, and then of course there's this sort of mysterious thing about Bobby, which is that it's referred to many times that he has a, he has an addiction, a heroin addiction problem. Yeah. And, um, and so there's been many productions where they sort of think, oh, he's currently on heroin. But I, I, I know during the, during yeah, the, and I, the play. I, that never made sense to me because I felt like what he's trying to do is prove to Donnie that he can be a player, that he can be one. of. So while he may still be struggling, I think he's trying to stay clean and trying to do all that stuff. So we talked a lot about, yeah. And, and also I just kept reminding them, you know, again, to that question of what happens if I don't, this idea of Donnie, sorry, Bob, <clears throat> Bobby looking for a home. If he doesn't find a home, he's back on the street, homeless, pretty much. And uh, Donnie, I think Donnie's looking for a lot of stuff. Donnie's looking for money. I think he's looking for love. You know, like we all get to a point in our, our lives and we think, what if I don't find love? What if I don't find a home? And the weird thing about this play is when it comes down to it, and then I, this is where I think it, people have gone wrong with it in the past, is though these guys are deeply flawed, and like you say, you know, in some ways have no idea what they're doing, they're really deeply in need of love. And they're a weird, dysfunctional bond of people who love each other. A lot of people play it like they're trying to push each other away, but I don't think so. They're just grappling because they're not equipped to understand how to, love each other and they almost kill each other and also that is so true in your production to the point where you feel like teach is really jealous of bobby's relationship yeah right absolutely. like like it feels like that with donnie like it really feels like wait i, I thought i was your best friend right like it it's so well it, yeah and it gets really you know going down that rabbit hole, which we did, which is very, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a big point you're bringing up because we talked a lot about, you know, the two sons, like the two sons and the father, the bastard, yeah. love, the beloved son and the not beloved son, or, or there was a lot of Othello, Iago and Desdemona, this idea of, you know, teach being this Iago like character of like mercenary. I want the job and, and making Donnie distrust everybody around him. That's right. So there's a lot of like, you know, dramatic themes that not for nothing, they play out and, and, you know, Mammoth's talked about this in, in, in uh, he did one of those master classes, which is pretty fascinating to watch. But if you hear him talk about this play, he talks about it in almost Greek terms 
in that way. But yes, you're, you're touching on a lot of stuff that thematically it's, um, it's deep and it gets, it gets very rough at the end, as you, as, as we said. Oh my God. Yeah. It's so rough. It, I felt like it was rough in that, like I'm covering my eyes rough. I was like, Oh my God, Neil, what are you doing to me? Um, <laughs> you know, you've worked predominantly quite, I mean, since I've known you with living playwrights, like the most yeah. incredible living play, play, playwrights yeah. of our generation. I mean, Jez Butterworth, Martin McT I mean, the list is endless. Adam Rapp, all of these incredible, uh, incredible writers. Um, Mamet is, is a living playwright. Was he, obviously COVID restricted a lot of ways in which, you know, everyone worked even once the theaters were back open and rehearsal was back in in process did he come into the room at all during this rehearsal process no he he no. he barely uh i i think he you know i've known him a long long time but he he met the there was a photo shoot pre-covid that i couldn't be in in la but he was out there with the guys and they sort of talked a little bit but but no he kind of left us to our own devices we, weirdly it was funny macy was shooting a film in New Jersey when we were rehearsing and, and Lawrence and Sam and Darren were like, Oh, bring him in. We want him to talk about the original production. So, so Macy was like, we brought in the expert William H. Macy to talk about, <laughs> which was fun. Cause I, you know, I've no, obviously known and worked with him for many years and he did teach for me a long time ago. So, um, but, but he came in and talked about it and, and no mammoth left us to our own devices, um, which was great. And like a lot of, I mean, you know this because a lot of our friends are, are great playwrights. Is I think real the really most of the really great playwrights they know when they want to be there and they know when they should leave. Yeah, you know, and, and especially if it's a new play, as you know, you know, playwrights will want to be there because it's the first production. Yeah. But when it's a play that's been around for God, I don't know, fifty years or however long this play's been around, um, no. But but just to harken back to what you were saying, and I think you've probably had the same experience because we both had such long and great adventures in the theater. Um, that's to me, the gift has been like doing this kind of thing, you know, you and I talking or, or being, being able to be around extraordinary minds, all, you know, playwrights, especially, but actors and directors. And that I've, that I've been afforded the opportunity, you know, which has been a real gift in running the Atlantic theater company that I've been able to collaborate with so many people. And that I, that's just been an ongoing sort of life. It's like being in this amazing class where you get to hang, hang out with really cool people, <clears throat> you know, and, and they're not always easy, but they're, it's amazing. So it's been great. Yeah. Well, it was pretty wild just to see the spring awakening doc on HBO recently, um, and just, you know, I think I was at one of the first previews, uh, Michael yeah. Mayer, you know, asked me to come watch this thing he was doing. And I'd known Steven Sater. We read a play of his at Naked Angels, like really early days and Duncan. Uh, For those of you that don't don't know, I'm just going yeah. to point out that Michael Mayer directed Alana in You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. Isn't that, that is correct. correct. Yes. And, yes. On uh, Broadway, on the Broadway. On the Broadway. And yeah. uh, I think... I think if I'm not wrong, while I was doing that, once we were up and running, the way Michael runs from play to play, I think he then was doing Lion in Winter. Uh, with with Lawrence? Yeah, like the same season. Um, wow. I feel like I was I, at some I think Tony that might table. Be right. 
I think that might be right. Yes. And I think I was sitting next to Fishburn that night, you know, randomly, I guess they put the mayor shows all at one round table. Um, (laughs) But, but to just kind of go back to in your um, very long tenure as artistic (laughs) director, I remember when you took it on and raised your hand, you know, at the time, when Atlantic Theater was first starting, I feel like for those of you who don't know, like different members would take on a year or two, um, you know, right. volunteer to do it. Uh, there yeah. wasn't one, you know, it wasn't like other theater companies like Lincoln Center that had one person that they hired for, you know, as long as the board decided they wanted them to do it, basically. Right. Um, right. And so to see what you and Mary McCann and others have built, not just as a as a unbelievable uh, theater company in New York that really develops new works from playwrights from all over the world, telling stories that really resonate with people from all walks of life. There's a school and there are classes and children. I mean, it it has grown into this um, unbelievable presence in the theater world uh, with probably, I don't know, I, I don't know the numbers, but would rival any other company's ability to move things to Broadway and have these commercial successes where more and more people get to see the thing for a long time. Because when they do shows in their smaller theater, you know, they have a season. They can't let things extend forever and ever because then another right. playwright doesn't get their turn. And so right. the idea Beauty Queen of London, I mean, it's just unbelievable what you guys have done and what you, your taste is just incredible i'm sure the hardest part of the job it's great to say yes i'm sure it's heartbreaking when you have to say no um that must suck because (laughs) you love making people happy you're so great at that so well yeah i mean a couple of things strike me at listening to you talk about it because as you know and i think you alluded to this before when you and i were first starting out we must have been because we're still so young we must have been in nursery school at this yeah. point because well mid-80s. prodigies i think they call yeah, us prodigies exactly. <laughs> but in the in the mid to late 80s um there were yeah there were a lot of ensemble based companies and it was sort of people like you and i who really wanted to work as actors and and because we didn't want to wait around we started creating our own work and so many of those people, whether they were from Naked Angels or Manhattan Class Company or Atlantic or New York Stage and Film or, you know, Seraphim, all these different companies that... Malapart, later. Malapart, yeah. yeah it's, it's kind of amazing. And then, and then in other in other cities, I mean, before us, there was, you know, Steppenwolf and all, all these other ensemble-based companies. So, yeah. yes, it was a gift to work with that. And then to, this is, this is where it gets tricky, to evolve it, right? Because when you're in your 20s, you want to just put ourselves to work. And then a lot of our friends, you know, like us, we, you sort of go off on your journey. Some went to L.A., some stayed here, some like you went to Broadway. Everybody did their own thing. Um, so, yeah, what am I saying? I guess what I'm saying is we have tried to evolve and tried to stay true to our roots about ensemble-based theater. But, of course, you start with an ensemble and everybody gets older and has different aspirations. So there are still shows that involve a lot of ensemble members, but it was always inherently too about the play and the playwright and the author's voice. So we've tried to kind of expand and evolve and and expand. Mary's, my wife has done an amazing job 
not only as an actor, but as a running the school and, and like you said, teen programs and all that stuff. So it's been quite a journey. Um, but again, like you're saying, there's something about those of us who hung in there. The fact that you and I are talking now, and I remember you came up to Vermont and you visited the first summer that I was artistic director, which is 1992. You came up to Vermont. I remember talking to you uh, just, and there we were. And that was 30 years ago, Alana Olivia. Wait, I'm picturing uh, that night. And you look, you know, and the fact that you're only 35, I don't know how that, how that happened, but. Well, (laughs) yeah, it's, it's just, just time is the craziest because as you talk about that, I can literally picture you and me and Max Mayer. I mean, I see it totally. like, like yep. I don't even know how to experience the decades in between that night and right yeah. now. Um, I, know. I feel so lucky. I feel so lucky. It is such a privilege to have a life in the theater and to grow up in the theater and to cheer each other on. And really the thing about starting out in a, my very first company membership was at Circle Rep. I got into that young company and- Amazing company, amazing company. Unbelievable. And and just what you learn really early on, you learn to root for each other and to really want the best for each other. Exactly for the reason you were saying, because it was never about us. It was about serving this other thing. I mean, it was so pure, but overall it's been the most satisfying life to kind of constantly just to get to read all the time, like just the things that are demanded of this life, which is to, to read and to explore text and to explore relationships. And through every one of those plays that I've seen of yours and you've directed so much um, and then I love when I'm watching a movie with my kids and you appear in it and that's the best. They're like, there's <laughs> Lena's dad. I'm like, yes, yes, exactly. Um, you know, that that's part of your history too. And you bring that to the work that you do, like such a compassion and empathy for what it is to be an actor and how hard and scary and vulnerable that is. And I think because yeah. you know that you just bring so much um, compassion and great humor and you just have the most exquisite taste and and you have continued to find and unearth these unbelievable stories that help us grow as people well, and be kinder to each other at the same time. And so that's, I just um, think you're amazing. That Thank you for saying all of that. That's incredibly generous of you and right back at you also right back at you but yeah, i but that's I, what i but, want the podcast to be called from now on right, right back, back at you it's funny but you know this too like i had this moment the other day or you know going around to these luncheons and and of course since billy crystal is on broadway luncheons. yeah but don't, well or it, this was this was a, a, another thing but oh. but billy billy crystal because he's on broadway i was like i was like so one of the few, I don't you may know this, one of the few films that I acted in, which, you know, was enough of a significant role, people might remember it, that actually our friend Kenny Lonergan worked on the script was Analyze This. And I was in therapy with Billy Crystal in that film. Um, he's a shrink and I'm a guy who's too nice. I'm too agreeable. <laughs> and he says, no, you got to stand up for yourself. You got to stand up. And one of De Niro's flunkies walks in and tries to 
cancel the thing. And I start negotiating with him and I get him to pay me off. And, and so I, I say to Billy Crystal, you've succeeded. I stand up, stood up for myself, but I thought it's what it was one of those times where I'm like, wow, here it is. However many years later, and we're still doing theater and we're all at different points in our careers. But, but just like, you know, like you and your good man, Charlie, all, like all the different things that we do, it's, it's crazy. But what's the point I was trying to make was, community there's so much talk about community now which i think is important and this idea of the people who chose to do you know stay in theater and this community in new york and obviously they've gone and done film and tv as well but there's something about coming together as artists and doing live theater and the other thing that i think was pretty unique which is why we're all still around is i think as we were cheering each other on we were also like you said, in a competitive way and the best sense of competitiveness and challenging, challenging each other to do really great work, yeah. to strive for excellence. Yeah. And that's why we were in, that's what I loved about New York because like it or not, the audiences and the artists and the whole vibe of New York is, you know, go for it. If not here, where, you know, the, every, yeah. the audience wants you to push the envelope. And yeah. so to a certain extent, you can cheer each other on and going, yeah, this is crazy. And how do we do it? But, but it's okay to speak the unspeakable or, or, or say those things that maybe you're not allowed to say, because that's what great theater is about. So that community, um, the ever expanding community has been amazing. Um, before I let you go, yeah. is there uh, a little known fact about Neil Pepe that you can share? Um. I'm sure there's many. <laughs> I, let, me, let me scroll through the list. Do you want to phone a friend? Yeah. yeah. Let me phone or a your friend. therapist. Exactly. Well, well, I, I suppose the little known fact that I'm most proud of, you may have alluded to it before, is so my, my real aspiration I, and I, for many years was uh, to be a musician. And so the, the kind of little known fact is that um, – for the first 10 years I was in New York, I was playing in bands um, and blues bands and rock bands. And I'm a guitarist and harmonica player. And, and so for, for my own fun, I do a lot of, um, I get together with musician friends and, and play and, you know, and, and I've, I've had the good fortune of have, having many friends who are extremely great rock and roll musicians who I can, who I can actually hang in there with, which is great, you know, playing. And, uh, and the little known fact too, is that I, when, during spring awakening, um, when it was down at the Atlantic, our guitarist had to call out for, a, I don't know, four or five days. So I played all the guitar parts. I came in as the artistic director and actually played. And, and, and if you look closely, if you see that documentary, there's some, some of the oldest footage you'll flash by, you'll see Frank Wood, playing the adult role and Mary McCann playing the adult roles. And you'll see me in the background on the guitar playing. Cause we shot the video at the end of the Atlantic run and I was playing the guitar. So there's a little known fact. That is incredible. Uh, Neil Pepe, thank you for being on the podcast today. You are the best. Thank you, Alana Levine. You are the best. And uh, it's always a pleasure. Um, especially because we've been doing all doing this so long. One more thing, I keep getting emails asking how to donate to the podcast. 
First of all, thank you in advance. You are the kindest humans. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. That is where you donate. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. This episode of Little Known Facts was edited by Nicholas Klar. We record in New York City. The Little Known Facts social media intern is Sophia Rosenbaum. The Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you.